Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. Hello, I'm Colonel Danielle Ngo. I'm a Chief of Staff of the Army Senior Military Fellow here at CSIS. I've been in the military for 30 years, mostly as a combat engineer. I've relied on technology throughout my career and believe it's one of the most important aspects that makes the U.S. competitive as the best military in the world. I thank Caitlin for having me as a co-moderator for this very important subject. We are here with a really special episode on the Army. We were lucky enough to get not one, not two, but three representatives of Army Futures Command to talk about this unique organization and their approach of investing in and modernizing the Army. So I'm so excited to share this conversation. Danielle, thank you for being here with me today. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to Tech Unmanned. I am so looking forward to this conversation with our incredible experts. For the first time on Tech Unmanned, we are having three guest experts, which is just awesome. More knowledge, more power. And so I'd love to introduce them to you guys. First, we have Major General Richard Kaufman. He is the director of the Next Generation Combat Vehicles at Army Futures Command. Hey, how you doing? I'm Ross Kaufman. Really great to be on here. I am a huge fan of CSIS and Tech Unmanned is just an incredible program here. So uh, thank you for having me. I really uh, can go as deep as you want on armored vehicles. But when you think of the modern battlefield and heavy armored vehicles closing with and destroying with uh, adversaries, that's what we're into. And between myself, Kim Sablon and Glenn Dean, we absolutely are focused on getting the best stuff in the hands of our soldiers. Fantastic. I can't wait to dive into that. Well, you kind of did a little intro for me, but next we have Brigadier General Glenn Dean. He's the PEO of Ground Combat Systems. Hi, General Dean. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be with you today. Uh, really great to be here with uh, with my key partners in the uh, ground vehicle enterprise and the material development enterprise. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Kimberly Sablon. She is a director for science and technology at Army Futures Command. Hi, happy to be here as well. Uh, looking forward to all the uh, tech talk. I love it. I think Army Futures Command just sent us such a gem of a group. You all touch on different issues that I think we have covered in previous episodes of Tech Unmanned. And to me, this is like just the capstone of the conversation. We're really going to use that knowledge that we've gained from previous episodes, talking about different technologies and see how it's being applied today. Just to kick us off, I would love if you guys could all give us a quick kind of like elevator pitch intro into your organization and its mission and how it fits into Army Futures Command. And maybe General Kaufman, you can start us off. Sure. All right. Well, let's dive into Army Futures Command first. So Army Futures Command's four-star headquarters stood up in Austin, Texas. It's the first major change in organization since probably 72 when TRADOC stood up. And TRADOC is the training and doctrine command for our Army. So Post-Vietnam, that was a big deal. We needed to rebuild our army. We needed to rebuild the doctrine. 
Now what we've realized is we need to modernize. Over the last 20 years, both China and Russia have gone to school on, on us. They've watched us in Desert Storm. They watched us in 2003. And they said, hey, listen, if we're going to ever compete on the battlefield with the United States Army, we've got to do things differently. So they had a quite a head start on us as we were in Iraq and Afghanistan. Army Futures Command then took one and two-star headquarters and scattered them around to the epicenter of that technology and the epicenter of that development. So I'm here in Detroit, Michigan, Motown, baby, all the way. It is incredible because I sit right next door to Glenn Dean, who is an expert on procurement and fielding equipment that we write the requirements for. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, and I'm going to just pass it right over to General Dean. Yeah. Hey, th- thanks. So as the program executive officer for ground combat systems, I sit right here in Detroit with my key partners in the cross-functional team, our ground vehicle system center, who's our really our technology developers, and then the tank automotive command, who's our sustainment element. I have seven program offices whose uh, job it is to design, develop, produce, and then deliver the Army's uh, main ground combat vehicles. And so that's both the Enduring Fleet, Abrams Main Battle Tank, Bradley Fighting Vehicle, the Stryker Family Vehicles, Palo and Howitzer, and the future capabilities that Army Futures Command is leading into the future, mobile protective firepower, optionally manned fighting vehicle, and so on. So under the Assistant Secretary of the Army for Acquisition Logistics and Technology, there's a little bit of a split between the requirement side and the procurement side. But uh, in what we do, it's a team sport. We can't do what we do without the other members of the team represented here. Well, fantastic. I'm so excited to dive into some of those technologies you just mentioned. Dr. Sablon, over to you. Thanks, Kate Lins. Like General Kaufman mentioned, AFC combined under a single command, the tech development, which includes the medical research, by the way, concepts that informs more of the future operational environment and the Army requirements. Now, on the tech side with the ST organization, we're really focused on driving transformational capabilities for the future force. So you'll hear a lot of emphasis on working at the interface of technologies with problem framing at the core and having these iterative processes between the tech folks, the concepts, and experimentation. Taking ST into the dirt much earlier on than we've, we used to, failing early, learning from those failures, and really adjusting the efforts accordingly. I can't wait to dive into a lot of these issues. I loved, Dr. Sablon, what you said about taking ST into the dirt early. That's something we kind of talked about in one of our first episodes when we were talking about quantum technologies and quantum sensing and how, while they might work in lab conditions, they really need to be tested in the field to see if these technologies can sustain the use and the environment that we need them in. General Kaufman, maybe you can start off and General Dean, I'm sure you'll have thoughts. Army Futures Command is very different from the other military departments. I would love for you guys to talk to us about the reasoning, the strategy behind the way Army Futures was set up with all of these cross-functional teams and all these different focuses within the command. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got experts across our Army in different types of warfare, and everybody knows that. For instance, the expert aviator who's a two-star general lives in Huntsville, Alabama, is named Wally Rugen. He's an exceptional pilot. He's fought both conventional and special ops. Then you have experts on synthetic training environment. Think computer games that we train soldiers on. And they're in Orlando. 
we've got these experts and these general officers that have these really small teams. They're very nimble. And the experts have surrounded themselves with incredible talent that not only seek new technology, but get it in the hands of soldiers faster. So one of the charters of AFC is to get technology in the hands of soldiers so we can iterate very, very quickly so that we can then make decisions on the requirements. So that's one thing that's different. The next thing that's different is I'm shoulder to shoulder with the PEO. I just have to walk down one building over and I get to talk to Glenn Dean, who says, well, what you don't realize is that 10 years ago we tried that and it didn't work. And this is why. So you might want to try it a little differently here. And so that communication that AFC brings to Detroit and Huntsville and other places is paramount in the success. And you're right. We do do things differently than the Air Force and the Navy because we have a lot of different trade spaces, particularly in the ground vehicle fleet. There's mobility, there's lethality. And there's survivability. And those things, those are all levers that we can pull on different requirements. What we want to do is find out where the best technology exists, when it will be available, write a requirement that not only allows us to get that technology in the hands of our soldiers, but then constantly improve whatever we develop much faster. Because right now, and Glenn can go into detail on this, but it takes years to improve a, a combat vehicle. It's about a 10-year cycle, I believe. We want to do that so that we can iterate faster and faster and faster. And Army Futures Command is not only doing that, but just two other things. If you want to talk to Army Futures Command, and I know it can be daunting to work with the government if you're a small business or even if you're just in a different space, the answer is yes. And you can reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter. I get requests over Facebook. It doesn't matter. The answer is yes. And we bring you in and we look at your technology because we are interested in getting the best the best athlete, the best equipment, the best technology for our soldiers. And I'll hand it over to Glenn. Yes, sir. Thanks. I'll hit on two points. One is that when you, you look at the services and what they do, remember the Army and to an extent the Marine Corps culturally are very different than our Navy and Air Force and now Space Force counterparts in that our stock and trade is fighting formations. It's not systems. We equip soldiers. We don't man equipment. And that's critical because the starting point is formations and how you fight. And that's what Futures Command starts with, right? Concepts and requirements that are grounded in how do you bring these things together to make the formation fight? And, and what I do is really an enabler to that. And if you look on paper of how the system of developing an idea and delivering it looks, it looks like this very linear thing. Oh, we develop a requirement and then the S&T folks develop the technology and then you hand it over to the program office who brings it together and eventually delivers it to the field and then it's you know, sustained. In practice, though, that's a very iterative process and all of those things are happening simultaneously to inform one another. And one of the things that you'll see, particularly at a Futures Command, is driving this sort of multi-level experimentation simultaneously so that the material developers and the S&T developers are looking at, hey, what can technology enable you to do? How does that fit in the formation construct? You can have good technology, but it might not quite fit right in, in what you want to be able to accomplish. Or you might find something that you didn't realize you'd ask the question, but you've discovered something that technology can enable you to do that you never thought to ask about. And if you weren't working in this sort of team cyclical process. If you're doing something strictly linear, which is, in all honesty, the way we've done a lot of things in the past, you miss those opportunities. The interaction and the teaming that, that we're bringing to the table through the cross-functional team construct is really enable you know, us to do that learning quicker and identify and realize opportunities. And Joe Kaufman may want to talk about some of the things we're doing with convergence uh, that is 
AFC uh, initiative that's really driving that into the future. I was wondering if General Kaufman wanted to respond to what General Dean just said, sir. No, absolutely. It may be blasphemy here on the Tech Unmanned podcast, but technology is mildly interesting to me. It's all about our soldiers, our women and men that will move to a position of advantage and put their lives on the line. So all of the things that we do are focused on the women and men in uniform. That point that Glenn made about the Navy man's equipment and we equip humans in the Army, which is different, I think that it can't be overstated. It's just unbelievable what we can do for our soldiers. And as 30-year career that I've had, I've learned nothing else than it's all about our people. And that's why our chief says people are first above everything else. Great. Thank you, sir. Um, the next question is for Dr. Sablon. In the past, the military has purchased commercial software for our communications and equipment technologies. Well, now we have a new program called the Software Factory, which is the first of its kind for the Army. It is a unique and exciting enterprise that will train soldiers and civilians to develop software. Dr. Sablon, can you give us an understanding of what they will do now and how the approach here is different? Absolutely. So I'm not sure if you're tracking the Army's digital transformation strategy that says that we have to develop a digital workforce that can continuously adapt and adopt new digital technologies and apply those to mission needs, right? So some of those mission needs, for example, where soldiers can help would be, well, the Army's internet technologies. How do we design that to improve efficiency? How do we optimize interoperability, maximize soldier autonomy at the tactical edges even? So, so to make all of this really happen where we're training our soldiers and, and civilians who are supporting military missions is the very reason why we stood up the software factory, right? Teach, develop, employ self-sustaining talent from all ranks across the military to really build that digital proficiency across the army. So they are solving problems, leveraging some agile cybersecurity they're solving problems based on leveraging cloud computing solutions and even harnessing innovations through close collaborations with academia and the tech industry, which is a very critical component. You visit Software Factory, I'll tell you it's very rank agnostic. We've really created that environment that's conducive to conceptualizing and building out that modernization more modern solutions. We've had two cohorts so far. The first one in January of this year, all actually were soldiers, 25 of them. But by July, we started to incorporate more civilians. So a total of 35 of which were, were civilians. So I encourage you to visit next time you're in the uh, Austin area there, out there at the uh, Austin Community College. And it's really great to see them building these software solutions with Army mission needs in mind. Thank you, Dr. Sabalone. Okay, so the next question is for General Kaufman. General Kaufman, sir, as a military fellow here at CSIS, I know that the Army has an incredibly large and nuanced portfolio. Please help us understand the role of technology R&D as a part of the Army's modernization priorities. Specifically, what are the priority emerging technologies for the Army that's coming up here in the future? Okay, so this is an exciting space, right? I mean, Robotics, artificial intelligence, uh, sensor technology, new algorithms, these will enable our soldiers on the battlefield to see the enemy first, 
engage the enemy first, and it arranges that the enemy cannot reach out and touch us. As you look at autonomy, I didn't know this until I took this job, but I found it fascinating that all autonomy work that really was occurring in the United States 20 years ago started with off-road autonomy. And the government, through DARPA and other places, started putting money towards off-road autonomy for robots. And it's a wicked problem. On-road autonomy, that's a really difficult problem to solve as well, right? But everything looks the same. The stop sign always looks the same. The lines on the road are the same. You have traffic rules. But when you look off-road, it's very, very difficult. And you have to put it in uh, very simple terms. Both Glenn and I are tankers, right? So we grew up learning how to maneuver a tank. And one thing that we learned is you never drive over a hill to expose the underbelly of your tank to the enemy because that's a very weak point in general of armored vehicles is the underbelly. Teaching a robot those type of maneuver techniques is difficult. It takes us about seven to 10 years to train a sergeant to maneuver an M1 tank like water flowing over the battlefield. So it's almost seamless. It just moves. It finds the low point so that the sights can see the enemy, but the actual tank itself is not exposed to enemy fire. Training a robot to do that, the robotic autonomy package, that's really hard. And we have to make some assumptions. We have to make some rules. So that's one space. Then you have both edge and cloud computing. We have a lot of hard decisions to make where we're going to make decisions or recommend decisions to humans. Will that processing occur at the edge or can we wait for it to get to the cloud process there and then move forward? That's a really neat area that we're working through. And then the robots themselves, right? I take it as a fact that the future will have unmanned aerial and ground robots in large numbers. And what do those look like? What's the mobility they need? How do they work together? Is it swarm technology? Are they partnered with humans? Is there a case to be made that at some point the humans are enabling the robots rather than the robots enabling the humans? And if you think that way and turn it on its head, we probably will never get to that point, but it allows you to observe this problem in such a different way because you're going to maximize what humans can do and maximize what robots can do. And then last, when you start talking quantum, that's a wicked problem. I think we'll solve it as the human race. However, now you're dealing with so much information. You can almost imagine a future battlefield commander with the matrix coming at them. Well, that's not what we need. We don't need just like a million pieces of data flowing into our brain. What we need is the computers to compute it faster than the enemy and make recommendations to the commanders on the battlefield in very simple ways. That could be a stoplight where, hey, green, your base course of action's on track, or red, hey, you need to stop and replant. This is all exciting to me, and I think it's a really exciting space to be in, but I'll pause there. Thank you, General Kaufman. So, sir, for you and for General Dean, how do you see your role as leaders in this field in guiding the modernization efforts of the Army? It's a clear delineation. So I'll talk my piece, and I'll hand it over to Glenn. I'm here because I've spent 30 years maneuvering large formations. And I recommend to the chief of staff of the Army and the commander of Army Futures Command what the requirements should be for our vehicles, for our robots, for our personnel carriers, for our light tanks. Once those are approved, then I work with Glenn to uh, make sure that those are achievable and on what time, at what cost, et cetera. Part of our role here as a cross-functional team is to understand what the technology is today, 
what's the maturation process and timeline of that maturation, and then establishing realistic goals that can be achieved and then future vehicles upgraded as maturation occurs. Glenn? Our role shifts similarly, right? Early in the life cycle, we're advisors to the cross-functional team. We're helping them to understand what's the art of the possible, what are the technical trades. You can have individual technologies that are fantastic, but you might not understand how they interact with one another, both in shaping platform and in what they're eventually going to cost and how long it's going to take to give you that capability. And so it's things that may not be immediately obvious. For example, right, you talk about you know what size of cannon we want to put on a vehicle and hey, it's clearly the, what the best performer of the Canon is, right? Well, except we ultimately have to integrate it to a platform and we have to consider, well, how high does it have to elevate or how low does it have to depress? And then depending on how big the gun is, that has an impact on the size of the turret it has to fit in. And the size of the turret then has an impact on how much of that is a target that's exposed. And at some point, the ideal elevation might end up with a vehicle that's much too big and it's a target, so you might want to trade off. So we help articulate what those trade-offs mean and what the risks are in time and space and cost to help inform that requirement. And then once first iteration of the concept is settled, and that's something we're doing new, is not locking the requirement in too soon, allow that process to continue to inform you and gradually kind of narrow the space you're working in. But my folks are really in the go-fetch business at that point. We are then integrating technology, making sure that we work in the affordability, the supportability, the sustainability, producibility, so that we can build it at whatever scale the Army needs and then help keep it relevant in the fight when we hand it off to the sustainers who maintain that in the field. And so a big part of what we do at the front end of the program is what I call program alignment, is to make sure that for whatever requirements exist, right, the technology solutions are at an appropriate level of maturity for the resources we have and the acquisition strategy that we're going to use to procure that. So if we have something where we really want to push the cutting edge of capability and we need to develop the technology, you have to have an acquisition strategy and an investment strategy that allows for the time to invest to the level of performance you want. Or you may say, hey, here's something that's good enough right now, it's ready to go, in which case, hey, we want to make sure we have a strategy that's designed to grab that and move it into the field as rapidly as possible, and then maybe grow the capability later. So we do a lot of that informing and advising at the front end until we finally arrive at the right balance of the program, and then the program manager picks it up and goes to execute, and hopefully out the back end of that process, we get a first iteration of capability that's very effective, and then we continue to grow that until the Army says it's time to move on to the, the next generation. I'd piggyback on Glenn and say, very simply, we have a supported and supporting relationship. So when I'm doing the requirements, I am supported with all of the years of experience that Glenn has and his team of experts. They are helping us advise. And then once that requirement's written, Glenn becomes a supported and I become the supporting to make sure that if any adjustments need to be made to requirements that then I as a warfighter can go and make recommendations to the decision makers of what those changes should be. But part of the reason why AFC was stood up is the Army's a learning organization. So how did we do it before? They would write the requirement down at Fort Benning or Fort Knox or Fort Rucker. They would think they had it about right. And then they'd throw it to a PEO and a PM. And then seven years later, the PEO and PM would show up with this coffee cup and they'd say, here's your coffee cup. And they say, well, I wanted a, a wine glass. Well, that's not what your requirement said. This fits everything that your requirement said. So this allows us to iterate and go back and forth. And so nobody's surprised in the end. Everyone's vested and it's a team sport. 
I'll, I'll highlight what we're doing for optionally manned fighting vehicle right now, which is the example of how that's different, right? So General Kaufman's team started with a characteristics of needs. Unlike our traditional approach, which might be 200 pages of requirements document that might have 500 requirements in it, it was nine characteristics. And those were to guide how industry would innovate because we wanted innovation out of industry. We find that we provide too many specific requirements. And you know, our engineers are very happy to get, hey, give me the checklist of things that I have to do. And I will go down and I will check off everything on that checklist. And they're very, very good at that. But sometimes they miss the to what end, right? The context, which is why, hey, having soldiers in the loop and that design process early so the engineer can understand, hey, what's the balance of these things and how can they fit together? And how do you intend to use it so that I can better design to support you? So we started with a broad set of characteristics, brought in a larger number than usual of industry partners. We have five companies on contract doing the concepts for optionally manned fighting vehicle. And as the industry gives us their concepts, we analyze them. General Kaufman's team then makes kind of a decision on, hey, where do I want to narrow the concept down and get a little bit more specific? And then we feed the decisions we've made back to industry. We just completed the first cycle of that so that they can focus a little bit more and they'll bring their refined concepts back to us and we'll repeat that process until we get it right. We're also doing that completely digitally right now. Back in the 40s, we'd go out and bend hardware and you drive around the test track, eh, not, not right, go back and do that again. And that's a you know, long, expensive, time-consuming process. And so a lot faster in the digital environments, we were able to see the concepts sort of simultaneously across the enterprise. Much more iterative. What's unique in this space, and just to kind of hammer home what Glenn just said, if you talk to the CEO of a small company or a large company, they said, hey, listen, don't tell us how to suck the egg. Don't be so specific. Let us bring our brilliance to solve your problem. Give us a problem. We're going to come up with something very creative. But two levels down from them, their engineers are like, and what color should the third road wheel on the left be? So there's this duality coming out of industry. And what we in the past have fallen into is we've gone to the color of the road wheel. And we don't want to do that. What we want to do is say, all right, well, look, innovate. Let's unleash the power of the minds within industry to solve the problems that we have. Since Option Man Fighting Vehicle may not be familiar to everyone on the show, that is the Bradley replacement. Now, Bradley is an infantry fighting vehicle. It's not a tank. It's an infantry fighting vehicle. So it's got to be able to fight through the enemy's security zone. So it's got to be able to fight through that to get the most precious cargo on earth, America's women and men, onto the objective, at which point that vehicle then uses its main cannon, machine gun, tank killing, helicopter killing capabilities to support the infantry on the objective. And the whole purpose of mechanized infantry is to remove pediments that tanks can't remove so that the tanks can continue onto their objective very rapidly. That is the purpose of the infantry. Just like the light tank we're putting in the infantry formations is there to remove pediments to allow the infantry to continue onto their objective. It's a difficult space. The Army has been challenged to achieve success in this area several times, but we're doing it differently because we are a learning organization. We don't want to touch the same hot stove again. Well, and we've been talking, we had an autonomy episode, which was primarily focused on the air based on the experts that we had on, but I also just recorded an undersea and surface vehicle autonomy. So I love hearing the ground segment piece from the experts here. Dr. Seblon, you sit in a very different space. So I really want you to answer this question as well of what technologies or programs do you find most exciting or most promising? And how is this technology reshaping the Army for tomorrow? 
Absolutely, Caitlin. I'll tell you, there's so many tech areas from my foxhole that I'd say novel materials, things like AI, various components of energy are at least three critical areas that would support all Army technologies. Quite frankly, I think material R&D is the main challenge to our ability to develop materials that are tunable enough, that are interactive, or even more biomimic materials that can change their properties in ways that would offer huge advantages to military applications. Imagine if I'm integrating things like artificial intelligence with a certain material system that's tunable. Hey, and that thing can adapt to changes in its environment in real time. What if I use that for for tunable detectors that's much more capable with a huge range of performance than is really needed? And of course, the AI that tells it which capability needs to be optimized for a given situation. There's been so many breakthroughs recently, too, in various neuromorphic materials for energy-efficient computing. I think it's worth even mentioning, not just using, you know, these neuromorphic data processing to enhance recognition or optimization tasks. But if we can apply those to create full-spectrum cognitive electromagnetic sensing networks using those neuromorphic architectures, hey, we can mimic a bat circulation system, right? Which, as you know, it's, it's very distributed. You've seen, if you've observed how bats work, very distributed, but also very cooperative. You know, they can navigate, they can find insects, they can avoid threats make individual, make collective decisions. And these are the types of things that we want to think through to really get after decision dominance. And of course, with the energy space, I think it goes uh, without saying that it's fundamental to all of the technology areas that we've been talking about. And I'll tell you, one of the areas that I'm watching closely is use of things like artificial photosynthesis. If we can mimic these processes that plants use that employ inorganic materials, I think we can see, or at least I'd expect to see some revolutionary changes, especially for operational power for the Army. I love that a lot of these technologies you've brought up touched on several of the previous episodes we've had on this series, including a biotech episode, which was incredibly fascinating to me to learn about the different possibilities in that field and where that field is now and how it's growing and what the ethics are around it. And so I love hearing the Army's take about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, while, you know, I've, I've not thrown it out there, quantum is another area too. And you said earlier that you've had a few segments on there. And, and I think even with the advancements, we mentioned AI, we're likely going to see things like AI hardware being developed that's going to be based on quantum qubits and even neuromorphic processes as well, right? And, and to put that in perspective, modern quantum processors with about 50 qubits is the same performance that you're going to get from some of the most powerful supercomputers. So, so imagine if we use, we can do this with 300 qubits, right? You're talking, you know, real power here because now you're using, you're, you're able to compute using states that even exceeds the number of atoms that you have in the universe. So so I like so biotech is one of those areas that we're pushing in Army S and T and so is quantum. And to be clear, while we're not so focused on the quantum computing per se, we're certainly exploring applications of quantum data processing for things like 
you know, how do we simulate that electromagnetic battlefield? How do we process data from quantum sensors? As General Kaufman mentioned it earlier, that you have a lot of sensors out there, you know, a huge amounts of information that we have to process. So if we don't, at least in parallel, develop these processing capabilities, then we're losing the advantage of having quantum sensors. It's a really exciting time for Army S&T. I think the scientific and tech community uh, read large, and there's so much utility in those emerging technologies for Army applications. So I'm, I'm excited. So to grow those opportunities, uh, General Dean, um, I'd like to discuss the role of STEM expertise and talent in the Army. Major General Kaufman earlier talked about how the Army is focused on people. And I know that that's something the Army has worked hard on, probably more so than some of the other services. How do you approach STEM and the workforce talent pipeline in your organization? That's a great question because it is a huge challenge for STEM experienced folks. Just getting them into the DOD, whether they're civilian or uniformed, can be a challenge because right here in Detroit, we, we have a great competition for talent. We also understand that the talent we need in the future is probably not the talent mix that we have today. In my organization, I'm principally a consumer of that talent. While everyone in my organization needs to have a good STEM understanding and people will gravitate to the engineers, but if you're a business manager, if you're a cost estimator, you have to understand but communicate with folks who are speaking technology in order to perform your key functions. So everybody has to have a touch of that. The way we happen to be organized, all of my core engineering talent actually comes out of U.S. Army Futures Command, our ground vehicle system center, which is uh, located with us at Detroit Arsenal and provides via matrix all of my highly technical, and highly skilled engineering workforce. And I have to work with our partners in Futures Command and GBSC and the TACOM Logistics Center the other PEO that uh, shares our footprint at Detroit to identify hey, what are the competencies that we need in the future as things change. We've mentioned the need for data and analytics, understanding of systems architectures and in future systems architectures, the ability to apply robotics and autonomy software, and then now the ability to protect that through cyber. Those are all emerging competencies that we have to grow in a workforce. Some folks, you can start to train them, pick them up mid-career, but many of these folks, we have to create a demand signal that goes back into universities that, hey, these are growth areas as we compete with our commercial counterparts to make sure there is enough of a pool of talented folks to support both the commercial and the defense needs. Uh, we're lucky that given where we are, there's a good flow of people back and forth between the auto industry, the emerging tech sector in Detroit, and the government activities. But the help of our partners in Futures Command and, and the rest of the Army, we're, we're communicating that back uh, all the way out to university level of we want to see a shift over time in expertise. And it's not to say that we're still a heavily mechanical and electrical business. I mean, I still need experience in highly talented mechanical and electrical engineers. But now we have all these new things that we need as well. We certainly need the workforce to evolve to support us. Well, and I also wanted to get Dr. Sablon's take on this as well. I don't know if you have any specific programs that the science and technology at Army's Future Cram runs to engage the younger STEM workforce, but please give us your perspective. We do have, Kathleen, formalized programs in, in STEM. I think we put a lot of emphasis on talent management in STEM, both inside our organization and outside. And by inside, I mean just developing or existing scientists and engineers across the board. And at the same time, developing the necessary skill sets, you know, working closely with academia, 
their graduate students having the opportunity to work alongside our scientists and engineers. So it's certainly at the top of the totem pole, I'd say. We've, across the emerging tech areas, what we call the nine priority research areas, what we've done is we've expanded even the DoD SMART program with initiatives like uh, HyperSmart to really pull in talent in areas like uh, in hypersonics or smart in SynBio, smart manufacturing, AI smart. A lot of emphasis, to General Dean's point, too, on the data science and AI-enabled cyber and so forth. So the STEM talent in both the undergraduate and the graduate levels in those specialty areas of hypersonics in bio manufacturing, especially convergent manufacturing, which is a new initiative for us that we've been pushing. And it, it really calls for, you know, a, a different, to my point earlier, when I said we're focused at the intersection of technologies, we're really trying to build the talent pool to look at those intersections, not just focusing on things like additive or subtractive, but also how do we integrate intelligent designs for real-time adaptation and, and training undergraduate and graduate students uh, in those fields. We've also had huge initiatives in the HBCU MIs. We've actually stood up faculty immersion programs. There's actually a pilot. It's a two-year immersion program that places HBCU MI faculty in the Army laboratories and some R1 institutions for about six months of training and experiences, and then followed by 18 months or so of Army-relevant research at the uh, participants' home institution. And we've worked closely with even ASALT, General Dean's organization, to stand up an HBCU and XTEC HBCU prize competition for faculty and students, undergraduates and graduates alike, much like a Shark Tank, Think Tank kind of event. So we've had great support even from OSD to drive these initiatives. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done, but we're continuing to prioritize for sure expertise in areas like data, data science, cyber, cloud, software, engineering, and the like. Well, and I love that you guys are placed physically in some of these tech hubs of Austin, Detroit. You mentioned Huntsville. A lot of smart people in those areas for you to leverage. So this is our last question. I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll ask you to keep it brief, but you guys are our experts. And so I just want your opinion. If there's something you'd like to highlight, this is your time to shine. So just like a quick two minutes, I think, per expert. General Coffin, would you kick us off, please? Absolutely. The United States Army has made a significant investment by standing up a new headquarters. Congress has supported us with a significant investment in taxpayer dollars because we recognize there is a clear and present danger coming from China as the primary adversary and then not far behind is Russia. There is some thought that future wars will be fought by robots and cyber attacks and from space. But if you want to compel your adversary to capitulate, it's going to take women and men closing with the enemy and putting the United States of America in a position of advantage before they're going to capitulate. Nation states that opt to go to war are not generally willing to throw up the white flag just because of a single battle on sea or air. It's a joint force. So the joint force is necessary to come together to ensure that, number one, hopefully, we deter our adversaries from ever wanting to get in a fight with us. But number two, if that deterrence doesn't work, that we are prepared 
We have the resolve, we have the equipment, we have the women and men necessary to become victorious in any situation. And that's what we're trying to do. General Dean, how could you possibly follow that up? But I'm going to ask you to anyway. (laughs) We have to understand that we're entering an era of persistent competition and persistent competition means there's a need for persistent modernization. And when we talk about the technology space, there's this tendency to go toward invention, right? We need to invent something new. But I will tell you, persistent modernization is really about persistent innovation. And innovation can include invention, but it's not limited to it. It's the ideas that take things that we already have or are sort of near-term developmental and use them in different ways. Those are the things that are really going to reshape the battlefield in the next decade. The, the new inventions will come, but some of them will sort of take a while to be ready for prime time. But as we're learning in Futures Command's experiments at uh, Project Convergence, in many cases, linking up capabilities that we already have creates this tremendous change in our ability to be effective on the battlefield. And that's really innovation. And so as all our audience who may be in the, the tech development uh, sector is out there, they don't just have to have something new. It's not the new patent that necessarily you know, wins, although those are valuable. There may be ways that they can combine things they're already doing in ways we haven't thought of to help us continuously you know, modernize and innovate. I love that persistent innovation. Dr. Seblon? I couldn't agree more. Those are both really hard acts to follow. On the innovation front, I'll reemphasize the importance of being able to integrate numerous uh, innovations to really drive more disruptive capabilities for the future force. But that also requires, you know, having the culture to do that, having a culture for innovation. And we've we've certainly taken the steps in our innovation program. In fact, we launched the eMERGE and the iBridge program where we could collaborate more closely with our industry and, and academic partners. Really, the emphasis there is on interdisciplinary because we want to really bring and think through solutions across disciplines to, to create more emergent innovations. Well, thank you all for your time. I love that we finished with innovation and that we spent at least half of this podcast on technology talking about people. And I love that perspective. Thank you for your expertise and your time. And I've just really, really enjoyed learning from all of you. Well, what a wonderful conversation. We just had so much good stuff, so deep and technically informed. I definitely learned a lot. I think you know, primarily what, what really stood out to me and is something that I think I will walk away with this for months is I think General Dean said it and it's that we don't, we as in the army don't man equipment, we equip people. And I loved that description of the army's approach to emerging technologies. Cause I feel like some of the other, the other services and in the other episodes we've had, it's been so technology focused, you know, minus maybe like this, the STEM episode that we did, but this one was really, you know, the technology will support the people and that is the army's bread and butter. And it always will be. And I think it's a really great way to understand the army's approach to technologies as it's different from others. Yeah. So Caitlin, the army has been really heavily focused on people for the last few years, and it's really made a difference in where the vision is. So if we're focused on people, then the technology follows that vision, not creating technology and having the people 
fit into where that technology is headed towards. So I agree with you there. Danielle, what was your biggest takeaway? Kaylin, I think it's been good to hear that the Army's vision for the future is using more partnerships with industry. But there are those challenges for future investment on a potential limited budget that, I mean, the military is not going to get the amount of dollars that it has for years. So I think it's really important to see what they're going to try to prioritize in light of that. It was also amazing hearing about new innovation like software factory and the fact that they're using AI enhancement to modernize our equipment and gear. And that's important, again, for the soldiers who have to use the equipment and also to get ahead and to stay ahead of our competitors and adversaries. So that's a big deal. We don't want to fall behind our competitors like China and, and Russia with technology. And if we don't invest early, then we'll definitely fall behind. Yeah, I think on the partnership thing, I, I also remember Dr. Sablon mentioning that Army Futures partners a lot with universities, which is also something that AFRL talked about when we had General Pringle on. And so I'm, I mean, if you're a common American and, and not tied into all of this national security nonsense, you know, you probably don't realize how much military investment actually goes to universities and often local universities that are around where these bases are and and really the military just reinvesting in the community, which I think is a really great thing that has been highlighted time and time again throughout this podcast. And then on the AI side and, and using data and, and processing data better, you know, I do worry, and I think I've said this several times throughout the episodes that we often talk about AI as if it's like some fairy dust that you can sprinkle on a problem and it will just magically get better without a lot of understanding of how AI processes or machine learning processes work and the amount of work and training that needs to happen to not only develop them, but also train the people who will use them so that they're accurately using and reading and processing data. But the the conversation did turn, I think it was General Kaufman brought this up, what he called edge versus cloud processing and some hard trade-offs that the army is going to have to make, which I thought was interesting and, and kind of echoing some of the other conversations we've had on this podcast of, do you process data at the edge of the battlefield, on the battlefield? What kind of systems do you need to have? Where does the data need to go to be able to have that kind of quick turnaround where I think you're probably gaining on speed of information, but maybe not on depth. And so cloud would be, you know, sending maybe what we do now, sending it back. And so you definitely are losing some on the timeline, but possibly getting a better read on the information. And so that trade-off of what is the, you know, output and input, and then I guess I should say input and output, and then what, you know, where are these these critical choke points that we need to make decisions on early, not knowing exactly what kind of scenario we might be using this data in or using these technologies or that our soldiers will be you know, put in. It's hard to predict the future, but it sounds like they're trying to do their yeah, best. Especially in the past, the military has been apt to either think that they have to have the perfect solution in order to invest in it, or if there are cuts, they cut their research and development, which, you know, I, I think that's why we're at the point we have been and that we're falling behind some of our peers because we are not investing in 
early enough in the research and development aspect of it. And I think we've realized that in the military and that we have to get in early. And instead of following through with the entire program and, and being so invested in it, we know that if something doesn't work early, then we can divest from it and move into and something else. And that way we can continue for, to innovate and also to get those early wins that we need to continue our competitive edge. Yeah, I think we're seeing a, a shift in people investing more in this like iterative approach, but also what you identified, Danielle, is like where exactly is this risk level and what acceptable risk are we willing to take on in which scenarios and for which technologies? And that is something that we have talked about time and time again on Tech Unmanned. And I don't think any of us have good answers, but it's good to know that we've been talking over the past you know, six months with people, brilliant people who are all thinking about this issue. Well, thank you, Danielle, so much for being my co-host. It was an absolute delight to have you on the podcast, and I am so appreciative. Thank you so much, Caitlin. I've really enjoyed this. It is eye-opening because as much as I hear every day what the military is leaning towards in the future, well, sometimes we don't get the, you know, on the ground truth from those that are making the decisions. So thank you so much for, for letting me be a part of this. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Visit our show page at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes and more about our guests. Also, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review the series wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks.